Welcome to the Writer's Room, where funny writers who sit in funny rooms and write funny words for other people finally get to talk. Here's your host, me, Jeff Cesario. I've been waiting for this one for a long time, this episode <laughs> of the Writer's Room. Uh, my guest today uh, is a uh, comic and a writer who has who has a list of credits that I believe is larger, Gary, than any other list of television credits that we've ever had. It's it's an amazing list. Please welcome Matt Harowitz. Matt, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, you look fabulous. Get- and I realize now that I always introduce people uh, as a holdover from my Chet Waterhouse days, as if they just stepped into the booth. <laughs> It's always, hey, Maddie, how are you today? I like it. I'm stepping right into like a mid third inning kind of dry spell. Yeah, exactly. It's already seven nothing. There's only <laughs> one guy in the booth. Massive time to kill. Uh, and let's first, before we even dive in, uh, here's the difference, folks, uh, between how my career uh, transpired and how Matt's is going. Matt's background entirely books. <laughs> and uh, literate things and all I have my a lamp all, and some old vintage things a very a very uh lightly used drums uh drum kit from the pandemic that is, uh, oh is that the uh, and now that's the the practice drum kit well that it's the it's the electronic pad so you can plug headphones in and oh. your family doesn't hate you um that's uh, yeah yeah although anybody who listens to the music might hate you <laughs> Mm-hmm. From I mean, those lasted about two years, the electric drum kits. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're terrible. And they're then terrible. Uh, people went, you know, it would be the only thing worse would be if we modified the human voice. So let's do that. <laughs> let's and then do that. that. Yeah. And it worked. It worked for everybody except for comics and writers. That's, right. Exactly. Seems to be now, the way. Um, uh, let's start where I first experienced the Matt Harowitz a juggernaut, which was uh, a late, late show. With, oh yes, uh, yes. With uh, now Greg was Kilborn. it was it uh, Kilborn or or Ferguson? Well, it was Kilborn. I I originally was an intern for the Late Late Show with Tom Snyder. Then I oh. came back for the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn, and then I left for the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. <laughs> so so wow, was, uh, yeah. So you you yes. accomplished. Uh, three career moves inside one show. Inside one weirdly named late show. Yes, yes. That is, uh, that oh. might still be a Hollywood record. That's impressive. <laughs> I know one person who lasted, Tim Mancinelli, went from Tom Snyder all the way through James Corden. Wow. Yeah, he did all the Late Late Shows. And what did he do? He was an assistant director, and then he was the director of Ferguson, and then the director of uh, Corden. And I was just like, I mean, it's incredible. That run is insane. Yeah. you know. But, you know, to be fair, that's the tech side of it. <laughs> A lot of people don't even know those people. I'm talking about the hosts. Yeah, they don't no. even know those people. No, 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 no. That's true. Most of those. Do you remember there was that period of time where there were guest hosts, where they were yeah. trying out people? It was like on-air auditions for, I mean, that's bananas. The idea that we could would tolerate that as a society of like, <laughs> we're just going to see how this, let's watch the sausage get made and then, yeah, <laughs> and right. then consume the leftovers. It's even kind of worse. It's like, let's watch the sausage casings get unloaded 
<laughs> from the truck. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's not even really let's watch the sausage. No, no. Let's watch them feed the pigs into the butcher, into the <laughs> into the kill house. It's so just, you start you're able to parlay the um intern role mm-hmm. into a into a writing gig, correct? Well, yeah, it took a long time. I I I left, I finished school, and then I came back. I was Craig's assistant. So um, hang on, wait a second. There's, there's too much here. Okay. I have to unpack this. I know it sounds like you're just covering about a month of your life, but <laughs> well, let's take you want to let's rewind all the way because I, I there is a very important part of this that um I talk about a lot to friends and family. Um a a young Matt Harowitz, uh, I don't know what year, but I do remember that it was a, a point at which I should have been going to a party on New Year's, but instead I stayed home because HBO was showing um, all of their half hour comedy hours. And I watched, I remember at 1230, I watched Jeff Cesario's half hour and I, A, was blown away and B, then always remember that name and then see your name pop up on Dennis Miller Live and see your name pop up on uh, Larry Sanders. And that's when I start connecting the dots that you could be a comedian and then you could also be a writer. And those are, those are like, just straight facts. I remember. So, so I'm responsible for this Michigas. Is that <laughs> what you say? That's what my parents say. Yes. My parents blame you. They're, they're, they're here visiting. So if they storm through that door right now, it's to blame you. Oh. Um, but so, so every, every heroine shivas, I, I, I come up. <laughs> you, you come up. Yes. Somehow. Yeah. I even want, I mean, yeah, but, but, you were, I was Yiddish, a fan. and then the name Cesario, and then more Yiddish, <laughs> and then more Yiddish, and then someone spits on the floor. Um, I don't know why. Well, man. Those are very kind words, uh, and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I I kind of like that HBO special myself. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love all the stand-up spots, and then of course, uh, you know, you getting bumped on Larry Sanders is iconic. <laughs> which iconic is episode. which, uh, you know, is also true. Uh, it was, well, not true, but what had happened was I started essentially working for Gary Shandling by just chipping in jokes for the Larry Sanders monologues. Oh, great. Uh, just because, you know, none, no writer on the Larry Sanders show has the time to write semi pretend monologue jokes, you know, never knowing how many will be used, probably maximum one, right. One every other episode. So, so I would just throw Gary jokes. Right. And he would say, you know what, let me do a little something. I had no idea what he was talking about. And then he started to, that's how bumping Jeff Cesario got into the show. Amazing. It was his way of going, you know, I'll just at least mention you on air. So, <laughs> so then every That's now amazing. and then I'd hear my apologies to Jeff Cesario. We ran out of time. We'll have him back soon. Something like that. And right. then it kind of became a thing. And then Judd and I wrote a script about being bumped for like the 10th time, which was, Oh wild. my God. Absolutely amazing. But that's it. It is. It's funny. Cause that is the skill set, the joke writing skill set that comes naturally to guys like us and we don't see it as a talent necessarily. We see it as a way to avoid being bullied or to keep people interested in what we're saying. So they're not just wondering, you know, what, why we're short or whatever it is, but 
I was an intern seeing, seeing your path, seeing how it was, you know, how it could be done. I saw a very clear way to kind of get into a writer's room. And it started with an internship. I was interning at 95.5 WPLJ in, in New York city. And I was the intern that they, I started to go get lunches and then they started to have other interns get lunches and they asked me to write jokes (laughs) and I wasn't thinking anything of it. It never That's, thought it was special at all. And um, that is maybe the cleanest transition into writing <laughs> I've ever heard. It was literally like sit down and read the news. And I was like, okay, okay. And they said, just if something comes up, just write it down. And I would write it on yellow legal pads and hand it to the hosts. And they, and they started reading them. And then what kind of format did they play music? Was it, it was talk? afternoon drive. Um, and they, yeah, they would do, they played music and then they would do little bits every now and then, you know, it's like, like Kevin and Bean. Um, right. And, right. Uh, you know, it was great. It, the And the best part about it was every Thursday, the comedian that was headlining Caroline's would come in and promote their weekend. And then they would give free tickets to all the, to the radio, to the radio show, but no one ever used them. Now I'm 18 I took them. I would go to the early show and late show on Fridays. I would drink underage. <laughs> I would bring my friends. We were treated great. And I got to meet guys like Chappelle, Fitzsimmons, um, Jeff Ross, Elon Gold. I got to meet all those guys. Norm MacDonald, but I didn't really have, have any connection with him, but I got to go see him. I got to see all those guys do an hour, hour and a half. And I got to see all the people opening and middling. And it just started to kind of lay out this path of like, tell jokes, write jokes. These are the people you want to emulate. These are the people. And I was already a stand-up fan. And then I meet Elon and Elon introduces me to Jeff and I start writing roast jokes for Jeff. And I'm still in college at this point. Where are you you in college? Ithaca. There was one day Jeff calls me, sorry, emails me. I still, it was AOL email. This is um, Jeff Ross. Jeff Ross emails the, me and on, says, hey. On an AOL email system that I still believe uh, utilized bicycles somehow. That's how <laughs> long ago. Yeah, well, the email got to me probably in the same amount of time it took for me to drive from Ithaca to New York City <laughs> when he invited me to write jokes. He thought I was in the city and I was back at school and I drove oh. down to write jokes for him for a Friars Club roast. And so I'm sitting in the Friars Club with... I don't even remember the other guys, but Elon was there and, you know, that's, I just started writing jokes for those guys. And then I realized if I'm going to get a job on a late night show, which was the goal, I have to intern for a late night show. So I went out to California, I interned for the late, late show with Tom Snyder, hoping I could get an internship in New York for Letterman. That internship ended. I got an internship for Worldwide Pants, not Letterman, but for a different show that they were doing. And I met, um, oh my God, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Adam Resnick, who wrote Cabin Boy. He was Chris Elliott's guy. He had a show on, um, uh, what's it called? He had a show on HBO at the time. And I was an intern for him on that. And he also, he was a guy who I didn't know that this was special, but he would be like, read a scene. And if any joke occurs to you, just tell me and I'll, and I'll see if it works. And I would get jokes in this show as an intern. And it was, I, I thought that's what happened. I, I was lucky. I was like, all right, this is great. You literally I, have a greased shoehorn <laughs> based, but based on your talent. Yeah. N- yes. Based on your ability to not only write jokes, 
but to be funny casually at lunch with employees, employers mm-hmm. who are going, well, then, then, then that guy there yeah. seems to be quick and funny. Yeah. Just he put did. him up because the <laughs> other guy's a pain in the ass and he gets the lunches wrong anyway. And <laughs> right. you know, leave him and let him perfect lunches and move Harowitz up. Yeah. Let that let, let the kid who's quietly always panicking, but doing a good job. Give him a chance. <laughs> As I I mean, what a, that's. And I so think now you come out to L.A. just to do the internship on the Late Late Show with Tom Snyder? Yeah, Ithaca had an exchange program where you could come out for a semester, take one class and do an internship. And I interned for Snyder. And I, you know, it was just one of those things where every other intern I was with was terrible. So the fact that I got there on time (laughs) and did what I was told and was happy to be there was amazing. You know, like... It was you literally glowed in the dark at that it was, point. It was anybody. like 730 in the morning. You show up and you start to put together research packets. And the people that were there, if you just look at it, who were all like old Letterman people were like, oh, were Debbie Drimmer, who goes on. She was the booker. She goes on to be the head of talent at Comedy Central. Um, uh, Claudia Nikolaevsky was there. She was at the time like dating Paul Sims, hanging out with other Letterman writers. Spike Ferriston was around. Je- you know, um, John Stevens is there. He's friends with Spike as well. It's just like everybody who I was an intern for that were like kind of mid-level talk show people all move up a rung the next year when I move out. Right. And so I call them all after I graduate and they get me PA jobs. And I PA on a few different shows. And then I go into reality and... I was miserable in reality. And what'd you uh, do in reality? Well, I I was a segment producer for Kids Say the Darndest Things. So <laughs> I uh I I wrote setups for Bill Cosby and then some jokes. And, and this then, is this somehow made you miserable? <laughs> well, it, that wasn't the miserable part because then the show ended. And then they say to me, hey, how would you like a segment producing job on this Guinness Book of World's Records? And they hand me a folder and they say, you're flying to India tomorrow to produce a segment about the guy with the world's largest tumor above the head, above the shoulders. He has this thing on his head. And I'm like, I'm not flying to India tomorrow. I can't look at this picture. I'm not going to talk to this guy for a day. So I was like, I quit. <laughs> I, I, I was like, I'm out. I'm done. And wow. I called all the people I knew and they they were like, we're starting this show called The Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn. Craig needs an assistant. You want in? I, it, was, it was a no brainer. Absolutely. So I go, I work for Craig. <clears throat> I'm still writing jokes for people who are stand ups. I'm not doing stand up really yet. Um, but, uh, you know, Billy Kimball was the executive producer. He was great about getting people's jokes in, inviting people to write jokes. Russ Abrash comes from SNL. He wants you to write jokes. Steve Barker's there. He he's like encouraging you to write jokes. The two young guns were Wellesley Wilde and Alex Sulkin. They're, you know, like, hey, we were just in your position at SNL. Right. You know, like they everyone was super encouraging. And so I'm Craig's assistant. I'm helping with jokes. I'm throwing them in. I'm helping these other guys write jokes. I think I left for a week at that point and did we did Elon Gold's pilot together, right? 
That's right. We did a pilot for Elon Gold. He had a talk show pilot. Yeah, where he was going to be the host as himself and then also do impressions as the guests. Yes. <laughs> yes, which was, quite frankly, ahead of its time. It was way ahead of its time. Tommy Blancha writing on it. Um, that was he, a great show. Yeah. And and that is, I am telling you, one of the top five moments of my entire career was being on that show and playing Elon Gold's parents with Dennis Farina and I as a gay couple who had raised (laughs) Elon and, and I was the husband. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) And, and I got a full on flush on the lips kiss from Dennis Farina. Oh, that's in one of the scenes in the scene. Yeah, dude, he was so funny. And it was always funny because he gave Elon endless shit in just in life. He just, yeah, they had that relationship every, every minute of every day. Um, and they were great together. I mean, his sitcom, that sitcom should have worked. I, you know. Yeah. 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 There's so much of that. And so many of these weird little moments like that Mm -hmm. in these shows, nobody's ever heard of, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I'll never forget because it's Dennis Farina, for God's sake. You know, yeah. he's like, all right, what do you guys want for lunch? Hang out. We got to bang out this scene. All right, I'm going to kiss you. And then he, <laughs> then he leads it. <laughs> then he just plants this wet kiss on my lips. It was just so great. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we meet. Yep. Yep. And then next time I see you, you're at the Laugh Factory. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of kind of clawing back into stand-up after time. I had about eight years off because I was working Dennis Miller Live and a couple other Mm -hmm. gigs and things like that. Yeah. And then, of course, the bottom falls out of, like, the independent movie market and all my punch-up gigs in in (laughs) film dry up. Oh, okay. Oh, my gosh. I missed that part of the backstory. I missed that. Yeah. So then I got to start. So then I go, well, I got to start doing stand-up. So Jamie's nice enough to give me some spots. I start working there Mm. and I'm like, geez, I wonder if I can get on TV. And it's literally like, I wonder if I can get on TV and you overhear me and you go, Oh yeah, I can help you do that over at Kilbourne. And I'm like, really? And you go, yeah. "Yeah." And then like a month later I had a spot on Kilbourne. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, you obviously you always had, you always had material and it was always incredibly smart and funny. It was perfect. And I at the time, so I transition, uh, a word that means something different now, but I transitioned work-wise. Uh, um, Zoe Friedman leaves Kilbourne. She was the booker. She handled a lot of the comedians. Bud Friedman's daughter, amazing producer, and I for talent in her own right. And at the same time, I start doing stand-up because Greg Fitzsimmons and Elon Gold both tell me, like, hey, you're writing jokes for us, but some of these jokes have to be done by a short, fat Jew. And so, sure. so they start lending me stage time. And then Jamie starts putting me up at the Laugh Factory and I start doing open mics around town. So I knew the stand-up scene. They asked me to fill in uh, and book the, book the comics on the show for X amount of time. And I ended up doing it, I think, for the rest of the time I was there, two and a half, two and a half, three wow. years. And that's when I get to meet like guys like Dane Cook and um, I don't know, Sarah Silverman I met and like, just people who were around town and it was good. Cause you could, you know, bring people on, on the show and get to know them, h- hang out, right. Uh, go over jokes with them. And like, I'm supposed to give notes to people who are giving, who are doing the set. 
you know, kind of curate the material for the show. But right. honestly, for me, it was more like, let's talk about your set. It was, you know how Judd had that radio, fake radio show, he said when he was in high school, like, that's how I treated this job was, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to the Aspen Comedy Festival and talk to a bunch of comedians about how they put their set together. And that's kind of where my brain was at. And at the same time, uh, I shifted from uh, Craig's desk uh, as an assistant over to the writer's room. I wasn't fully promoted yet, but I was still writing jokes. And I'm starting to get this chip on my shoulder because I wanted to be promoted to full writer. And Wellesley Wild, it's one of the, uh, I mean, one of the um, best things anyone's ever done for me. Wellesley pulls me aside and is like, hey, buddy, uh, we can sense your attitude. Everyone can tell that you're a little bit bitter that you're not promoted yet. It's going to cost you the job. Keep your head down. Go back to the guy who started this job. Be happy to get jokes on. You know, like, I know you're getting spots around town. I know things are starting to take off a little bit in your head. But trust me when I tell you, because it cost him the job at SNL, an attitude will stick with you forever. Like, people will remember that. And he corrected me. And when he sorted me out, I stopped that immediately. I was just, I went back to, and I don't think I've ever changed that. I'm lucky to be in the position I'm in. Just getting a joke on a show is a joy. Just getting to go to the Laugh Factory and hang out with you or go, you know, hang out with Elon every night except Friday. Um, Whatever those things are, those are the reasons we're here. And that's the fun and the jobs will come. And if he hadn't adjusted me, I don't think I would be, I'm sure I would have cost myself that job and it would have, it would have changed things. But and it, now it's, it's should be uh, called the Wesley Wild internship. <laughs> yeah. The Wells. Yeah. Wellesley. Wellesley. Wellesley, Wellesley yeah. definitely. I mean, I think I, yeah, I think about that's, that. That's tremendous advice mm-hmm. and hard to take sometimes because yes. you realize Especially in rooms in in nightly comedy talk show rooms, they will gladly take on someone who's funny, mm-hmm. who may not be a full time writer yet, mm-hmm. because it's all shoveling coal. Yep, it's a nightly. Just we need more coal. The engine right, right, has right. to keep burning. Right. You that was funny. Get over here with a shovel and start shoveling. Yeah. But you have to trust the process that eventually somebody goes, okay, get him, get him the good shovel. Yep. And, yeah. and hire him to get closer to the engine. No, that's it. I mean, it is, you're, you know, you, you need, you need the full roster. You need the home run hitter who like Wellesley would write sometimes five jokes a day. They all got on. They were right. all, they were all applause breaks. You know, meanwhile, Ross Abrash is writing 150 jokes a day to get 12 on and six of them are applause breaks, you know, like, right. People just have high averages. And I, maybe I was just in there to chip a few singles and tag a few jokes and handle five questions, which a lot of people didn't want to do, or like write ads for the bumpers in and out, which people just didn't want to waste their time doing. Like that was, that's where I got my numbers up. And I was starting to feel like I'm getting a lot of jokes on. I'm getting more jokes on than some of the people on staff. Right. right. And my head got a little big. I I know a couple of comics who are blowing up who I'm writing jokes for on the side. And I'm feeling like, where's my spot? Where's my shot? And Wellesley sets me straight and is like, dude, the guy, 
the guy who got invited into the writer's room was the guy who was so happy to be here. Go back to that. Right. And I always try to, to check myself and make sure like, like, you know, even during the strike, like I got to help Smigel with a couple of his triumph bits that he's doing from the picket line. Obviously we're not getting paid. We're not writing right now. Right. But like, I got to sit and write jokes with Smigel. Like that's. Yeah. It is pretty amazing. There's, there's two things. Um, The first is it's strikes me that it's unintentional networking that you're not really aware that, I mean, so many people who get in, in this business are going, I'm going to do this so I can meet this number of people so that then I can make these kinds of contacts out of these contacts, 10% of them will pay off so that I can get to the next. I mean, there's some real structure to a lot of people's approach, which is, which is completely acceptable. But in your case, and I know in my case, I wasn't thinking that Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, Oh, Gary Shandling or Dennis Miller might think a joke of mine is funny. Mm-hmm. That would be cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then from then, it, it, you know, it just keeps growing. Yeah. So no, the that's, strength yeah. of learning how to write a great joke is, is, is tensile strength. It mm-hmm. will last you a long time. It will last you a long time. Learning that, learning that discipline of every morning at seven o'clock, I got to come in and start writing jokes. Like yeah. just, just that. And the callous you build up from bombing, from not getting jokes on, from failing every day and learning that you got to come back tomorrow and do it again. I mean, it is like baseball. It's like you're, you've bat 300, you're in the hall of fame and that does not go away. Uh, you know, when you, when I transitioned and I moved over and I was started to write on like some of the sketch shows and the roasts at comedy central, you know, I started, it's even harder. Like there's fewer jokes cause it's not night after night, but you're coming in, they're reading your jokes out loud. They're making fun of the hacky jokes that they've heard before. They're ripping you apart and you get three or four on that are huge laughs. And you feel like you, you feel like a God. And it, it goes back to that feeling of being in a uh, dorm room with your buddies and making everyone laugh. You know, we're all, that that was the feeling of a writer's room and then to see it pay off on a show and just get a huge laugh you just feel you're elated and you really start to feel like all that failure led to these four great jokes so if i can push through that feeling of discomfort that feeling of fear and that hurt after something gets silence like the worst feeling in the world is pitching a joke and then just hearing the writer's assistant go <laughs> And because there's no one laughing, it's just like punchline. And you get you can delete that. We you don't need to keep that one. See how right. no one reacted? You can delete that. And, Your joke uh, writing uh, structure and skill, I'm guessing, comes from two places. The first is that natural muscle that you mentioned early, which is you become funny as a kid to handle social situations where emotionally you're probably not equipped to mm-hmm. and to um, stiff arm bullies mm-hmm. or anyone who wants to crease you for any reason. Right. Right. That skill, which is valuable mm-hmm. and used on a daily basis when you're a kid. So that muscle gets strong. Yep. Couple that with 
the Caroline's University mm-hmm. that you went to watching great comic after great comic after great comic, not just do 10 or 20, but mm-hmm. do an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. So you're really seeing how they're putting together a set mm-hmm. and and all the finer points of joke writing, callbacks, icebreakers, so many other little yeah. technical things. Is that true? Is that how it comes together for you? And you just yeah. start writing your own jokes? Yeah, well, yes. You, I think you learn to write. Think of jokes quickly as a survival mechanism. If, as the fat kid, it literally was. If I can think of the best fat joke before this other guy does, I've at least saved some face. And so it really did feel like uh, you walk into school in a shirt that fits you weird. It's like, uh oh, and you, everyone looks at you and you're like, I better think of the joke before someone else makes fun of me. And that was, that was where I think you develop the speed. And right. then, you know, I would watch, I loved stand up. I loved comedy and I would watch it and I would just try to feel like there was a rhythm thing to me that I understood the way like my brother and my dad understand, understood sports, you know. It was just a natural thing to them. I saw that kind of, I I could see the X's and O's of comedy early on. And then, yes, when I'm going to see it live at Caroline's for the first time, and I'm watching, like there was, I watched Chappelle one weekend. I watched him on Friday uh, and Saturday, early show, late show, both nights. And then after the late show on Saturday night, people are paying their checks he comes back out 15 minutes later and he says, hey, if anyone wants to hang out, I'll do some more jokes. And so half the crowd is gone. Half the crowd comes in. The staff all sit down and watch. He takes out his notebook and does another hour out wow. of his notebook. Premises. And I'm watching him take a premise and talk about it. And I'm seeing him make himself laugh and then going, I got, I got to remember that. Like turn off to the guys who, who were with him and say, you remember that, remember that, you know, but he's just right out of his notebook. And to see the difference between his polished set and then his new premises, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that watching that. That's impressive. And that's a level of work ethic that intentionally does not appear in his standup. Right, right. <laughs> you know, right. it looks like he's just walking out. And he's got that beautiful rhythm that reminds me a little of Franklin Ajay. Oh, yeah. Yep. There's there's kind of a much more relaxed groove to it. Mm-hmm. He's not in a rush to get anything. He knows what's coming. Mm-hmm. And yep. yet that rhythm and that material comes from doing years of what you just described. Yeah. He told me. One time at the Laugh Factory, uh, he's I come off stage. He's about to go on, um, and he knew me. He knew me from the radio days. So he, he when we bump into each other, he always remembers remembers me as that kid still, the intern. Anyway, he sees me come off stage, and he says, "He's like Matt, uh, you got to get comfortable with the silences." He's like, "Don't worry about your laughs. Laughs will come. You're funny. You're fine." Calm down. If you stop talking and the room is silent, you got them. That's it. So take a break. See if the room's quiet. If it's not, figure out why it's not. Who's talking? Why are they talking? Interact. 
if you have them quiet, you can win. Like you can get that set done. And I always think about that. Even in writer's rooms, it's like if you're pitching an idea, like now in sitcoms, you're talking through a story. You can feel when you lose the rest of the writers. You can see when people kind of are locked in and like, yes, keep going, keep going. They pitch, they, they throw on, they pile on, they add to it. Great. We're going, we're going, going. You can see when people start looking at their phones, you've lost them. Right. And it's like, okay, that's where the problems is starting. I don't know that that's the problem with it, but something in here is structurally wrong, comedically wrong. It's impressive. Uh, first of all, that you got that advice from Chappelle. I wish I had gotten that advice uh, earlier in my career because mm-hmm. I tended to be in fifth gear most of the time mm-hmm. and then would go into overdrive uh-huh. if I sensed any. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Any slight issue, I would just go, I will provide all the energy in the room if I have to. Yes. And it took me a long time <laughs> to go, it's okay. Take it, take it back and reel them in a little more slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other great thing is to be able to transfer directly the skill you learn as a stand-up and as a performer on how to read a room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. then take that into a writer's room mm-hmm. and use it to your advantage. Yeah, that's that's impressive. Well, that's I mean, look, there are all these like little stepping stones, right? Like that callus you build about bombing. Like I knew at some point I wanted to go into sitcoms. And so I'm doing these late night shows and doing all these pilots, sketch shows, whatever. I produced a I produced a pilot for a then unknown comic named Burt Kreischer that, you know, should have been a hit and it it didn't go well, you know, like Comedy Central just didn't get Burt. I was caught in between. Burt had a guy he wanted to hire, Tom Segura. We hired Tom Segura as a writer. I didn't realize like, you know, their, their rhythm, how they were. I'm bringing in my own people trying to figure this out. It was a really tough thing. I'm an EP of that show, of that pilot. I've been trying to get into sitcoms for four years. The next day after that ends, I get offered a sitcom job. And it's my first sitcom job. And all I can get is staff writer. And I'm like, I'll take it. I really want to do this. I really want to get into sitcoms. And I go in this I go in there. I'm a little bit older than most of the Hang other on staff. One sec. I wanna yeah. I wanna uh reset you because okay. this is a great break point for for the two episodes with you. <laughs> uh, seriously, because right. the, the, I had no idea we would talk about, uh, talk shows and stand up for, for the full first episode. <laughs> it, it's impressive. So I do, I want to dive now into the, into the sitcoms, but, but let me, mm-hmm. let me just do this. And this can all be on air because, um, uh, I, I don't want Gary to have to do any editing. He's got a real <laughs> job for God's sake. 